The following sermon at Capitol Community Church, located in Raleigh, North Carolina, is by Russ Andrews, Executive Director of Finding Purpose Ministry. Capitol Community Church is a people awakened to a holy God. If you are searching for a new church home, are from out of town looking for a church to worship with, or simply seeking for answers, please join us for worship at 9 o'clock a.m. every Sunday morning. If you have any questions, please email us at info at We pray this sermon will help you grow deeper in your walk with Jesus Christ. Well, good evening, everybody. Um, I thought I might be preaching to an empty congregation tonight, given that there's a, I think there's a football game on sometime tonight. But anyway, um, and just so you know, um, Grant Castleberry, who's the minister, y'all may all know that he, he uh, was really sick. He called me last night, and he thinks he may have had food poisoning, and he uh, informed me that um, he was going to move Kenny to this morning, so I'm sure hopefully you all heard Kenny, and Kenny normally would be here tonight doing the Eighth Commandment. Well, I didn't have time to prepare a new message today on the Eighth Commandment, so tonight um, I'm going to be doing a message from 2 Timothy chapter 3, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 9, and it's entitled, Be Forewarned, The Days Are Evil. Now, I have to be honest with you, um, I'm not trying to be, you know, a, uh, give a, a somber message, but I, um, I sent three, three messages I've given before to Grant, and this is one of them I said, which one would you like for me to give? And he said, I like that one. <laughs> But he said, do whatever you want. But also, I, I got a call, uh, I got a text last night from Chris Moreland, and he wanted me to um, come to his life class this morning and help with um, jo- Joel chapters 1 and 2. So I missed church this morning. I missed Kenny. But I was in my office for two hours working on Joel, which is about the day of the Lord, because uh, the days then were evil. So I, I had that thing going <laughs> this morning. So. We're going to carry that theme into the night, and I hope you'll be blessed by it. But first, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for the day that you've given us and for our many, many blessings, beginning with our salvation, which comes because of your grace and mercy. So I ask you, Lord, tonight that you would take this message, that you would um, penetrate our minds and hearts, and that you would accomplish the purpose for which you intend. It's in your name that I pray. Amen. You probably heard the old joke about the man who was having a bad day. A friend said to him, cheer up, things could be worse. So he said, I did as I was told. I cheered up, and sure enough, things got worse. In essence, this is what Paul is trying to convey in his last letter to Timothy before he's beheaded. Things were going to get worse. When he wrote this letter, Paul, as you may know, was in chains in a Roman dungeon. The year was 66 A.D. Paul knew that his time on earth was coming to an end, and he loved Timothy so much like his own son, and he he wanted to make sure that Timothy was prepared for the difficult days that lay ahead. Things were going to get worse. Mankind was becoming more and more wicked, and Timothy would need to be strong and remain strong. In Paul's two letters to Timothy, he constantly challenges him to be strong, to live for God, and to not live for the world. And we fight that same battle, don't we, every day. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 11 through 15, Paul writes, But you, man of God, flee from all this worldliness and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. In the sight of God and of Christ Jesus, I charge you to keep this command without spot or blame until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. As I said, Paul loved Timothy. Does he want to make sure that Paul was prepared, excuse me, that Timothy was prepared to fight the good fight in the difficult days that were coming, days which would see the world becoming more and more evil? So, So tonight, we have the great privilege of listening to what Paul spoke back then to us from this dark dungeon as his words echo 
down through time and bring us a very strong word of warning, which I believe is, is even more applicable today as it was in Paul's day. So if you haven't already turned there, look at 2 Timothy chapter 3, beginning with verse 1. Paul writes, but mark this, there will be terrible times in the, la- the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, have nothing to do with them. I'm going to stop right there. We'll pick up with verse 6 in a few minutes. But um, in, this, in this portion of Paul's letter, he's basically trying to convey three very important truths to Timothy. And here they are. The first point is a warning. The second point is a revelation. And the third point is a command. He's doing the same thing with us tonight. He's giving us a warning. He is uh, giving us a revelation. And he, he is, he's giving us a command. So let's take a first look at the warning. So I believe, if, I believe if Paul was standing right here, I believe this is what he would say to us tonight, loud and clear. Everyone, listen to me and listen carefully. I want to warn you about what is in store for the world. The days that are coming are going to grow more and more violent and wicked, and you've you got to be prepared. And that's what we talked about in that Sunday school class this morning, that everybody said, you know, that their parents said, well, the world was the most wicked then they'd ever seen. Well, we're seeing the same thing. And our children, unfortunately, unless, unless the Lord comes, are going to say the same thing. That's why I'm praying, come Lord Jesus. I want to spare my grandchildren from the world that, towards which we're headed. Now, look at verse 1 again. Paul writes, but mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. The, the, the first word there, but, is the conjunction. And what it does, it changes the whole direction that Paul was going in his letter from one of encouragement to, to Timothy to live a godly life to this warning. But mark this, he writes. It, 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 this word means the, the, um, really realize this. Understand this. Get it in your head. That's what it means by mark this. He doesn't want us to stick our heads in the sand. Say, I want you to do tonight. Listen carefully, okay? (laughs) These are not my words, but God's words. This phrase, the last days, as many of you know, is a reference to the time period between the first coming of Christ and His second coming. And so when when I use the phrase, the last days, the world, we've been in the last days for almost 2,000 years. We are in the last days. There also is a last hour coming, and I'll, I'll address that shortly. Hebrews 1, verses 1 and 2 says, In the past God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. See, that kind of marks the beginning of the last days. By His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things and through whom He made the universe. In 1 John two eighteen. Uh, John writes, Dear children, this is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. This is how we know it is the last hour. You see, when John wrote this, he was describing the time in which he lived, but he was also describing the time in which we live. When Jesus came into this world almost 2,000 years ago, the clock began ticking that marks the last days. However, I also believe that we are inching very close to the last hour, the hour that will usher in the second coming. And as we get closer and closer to this last hour, the Bible makes it very clear, extremely clear, that the world will grow more and more violent and more and more wicked. Do y'all not see that today? That's the world we live in. It's not getting better, which is what liberal theologians believe, that we're getting better and better. No, we're not. Education and religion are not... I'm not doing anything to make us better. I'm talking about false religion. And here's the deal. As we get closer and closer to that final hour, Satan will know that his end is near, and he will not go away quietly. Thus, Paul warns us that there will be terrible times in the last days that will precede the last hour. This word terrible, by the way, comes from a Greek word that literally means perilous, savage, and violent. 
In fact, the only other place this word is used in the New Testament is Matthew chapter 8, verse 28, which says, when he, that is Jesus, arrived at the other side in the region of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men coming from the tombs met him. They were so, here's the word, violent, that no one could pass that way. See, the wickedness that, we, that will characterize the last days will be so violent that the only way that you can describe it is that it will be demonic-driven, just like the Holocaust. Hitler and his Nazi demons were literally demon-possessed. How can you explain uh, one human being being behind the, the extermination of six million of God's chosen people? It's, it's demonic because Satan, from the very beginning, has been just trying to destroy Israel and also today anybody who aligns with Israel, which is the, which are believers. I love to watch the evening news. Um, I, I like to. I used to watch, like to watch movies and television, but it's so gotten so bad you can't watch it anymore. But I always watch the news through the lens of Scripture, and as I've watched the news over the past five years over the past 10 years, really going back to, you know, when we were really having a lot of Islamic, Islamic terrorism and you've seen a lot of beheadings. I've never seen the world so evil, so brutal. You see this with the Mexican cartel. If you read about what they've done to police officers, I can't even describe it as so demonic. Everywhere you turn, there's danger. And, and the danger that's out there has just turned violent. Just look at our streets in 2020. Violence everywhere you look. Anarchy. <laughs> this increased violence has brought distress upon the world. Remember uh, the, when the Twin Towers came down? You could see the distress on the people in the streets as they watched from a distance. The towers come tumbling down. They were, they were full of fear, and they couldn't, the perplexity. And it reminds me of what Jesus said in Matthew 24 when he said, For then there will be great dis distress, unequaled from the beginning of the world until now, and never to be equaled again. If those days had not been cut short, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be short. Now, I think there he's talking about the last hour of the last days. In Luke chapter 21, verses 25 through 28, Jesus said, On the earth nations will be in anguish and perplexity. In the, at the roaring and tossing of the sea, men will faint from terror, apprehensive of what is coming on the world, for the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. When these things begin to take, happen, take place, what should believers do? Oh, woe is me. No, we should look up, he says. Stand up and lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. <laughs> In the last days, the world will become more and more evil. Rebellion against God will become more prevalent, more visible, and more bold. It will be just like in the days of Noah. Genesis 6, verses 5 through 7 says, and that's what Jesus said that the last hour will be like, just like in the days of Noah. But in, in Genesis 6 tells us what those days were like. The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become, and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. It says, the Lord was grieved that he made man on the earth, and his heart was filled with pain. So the Lord said, I will wipe mankind whom I have created from the face of the earth, men and animals and creatures that move along the ground, and birds of the air, for I'm grieved that I have made them. Evil, listen, became so uh, prevalent in the world at the times of Noah. You know what God, I believe, said? Enough. And he sent the flood. I believe at some point, the Bible actually says that, uh, he, that God measures things. He measures the, the number of Gentiles that are coming in until the full number of Gentiles has come in. Uh, Romans chapter 11. I'll mention that in a minute. And then he, he's measuring evil. And I believe he's measuring evil right now. And at some point, it reaches a limit when God says enough. And I believe the next time he says enough will usher in the second coming. So Paul has issued a warning, a warning to believers because we are the only people who are really listening. This, that's why it's addressed to Timothy. That's why John said, my dear children. He's, that the first, second, and third John are addressed to Christians. 
We're the only people listening, and we're the only people who actually believe what the Word of God says. Most, you see, most people believe that mankind is basically what? What'd you say, Alexandra? Good. I asked a friend of mine years ago who I was trying to share the gospel with if he thought mankind was basically good or evil. He said, good. He said, I, I said, well, uh, so how do you think a person gets to go to heaven? He said, I think God takes our good deeds and weighs them against our bad deeds. And if the scales tip in the right direction, you get to go to heaven. Do y'all believe that? No. <laughs> I said, show me that where that's in the Bible. So he was basically saying about himself that I believe my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds. And by the way, this is the way um, most liberal theologians believe about mankind. They, they diminish the, the sin and they elevate the goodness of man. They have a problem with the word evil. All we have to do is watch the evening news and observe the world around us, and we can see that Paul's warning has come true. <laughs> when people are being beheaded, when young girls are being sold into the sex trade industry, that's happening right now all over the world. When abortion is so widespread and abhorrent, when cartels are pushing millions and millions of illicit drugs around the world, when sexual images are being posted all over the Internet and in movies and on television, you can't even have, help watch a, you know, t an ad with your wife or a movie with your wife or your children. There's only one word to describe it. What's that word? It's evil. And it is evil brought upon the world by demons. That's the only way you can describe it. The last days are upon us, and they are exceedingly wicked. So that's the, um, the warning. Now, here's the revelation. In, in verses 2 through 5, um, Paul gives us a picture of the heart of mankind that, that is without God. It's a godless society. He uses 18 characteristics of the evil that will be prevalent as we pass through these last days and approach the last hour. Warren Worsby wrote the following, listen, in 1989, 33 years ago. <laughs> There's no, no doubt that these characteristics started to appear in Paul's day, and now they have increased in intensity. It's not simply that we have more people in the world or better news coverage. It appears that evil is deeper and of greater intensity, and that, is being accept, and that it is being accepted and promoted by society in a bolder way. It's not that we have smaller, small pockets of rebellion here and there. All of society seems to be in ferment and rebellion. We are indeed in terrible times. Paul begins his diatribe by saying that people will be lovers of themselves, and therein lies the problem. See, see the, the problem of the heart is the heart of the problem. It's the problem of the heart. And, you know, if we examine our own hearts, we have to admit that we're, we all have some evil in us. And, and we, we're, we're cut out of the same piece of cloth, all of mankind. We, we're born with evil desires. Just look at children. You, you tell them, don't do this, and what do they do? They go do it. That's the first thing they do. It's called rebellion. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, if you have a, see, here's the, here's the deal. It's like Jeremiah has taken, it's like the heart has passed through an x-ray machine, machine, and here's what, here's what the, the radiologist is reading, and Jeremiah is the, the radiologist. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Who can understand it? <laughs> and it says it's beyond cure. But listen, th there is a cure, but there is no cure apart from Jesus. Mankind can try to cover his wickedness with education and religion, but that's nothing more than putting a coat of painting on a rotting facade. It looks good on the outside, but the inside is full of what? Dead men's bones, just like a, a, a grave. Remember Jesus said that about the Pharisees? In this list, we see that people will become lovers of themselves, lovers of money, and lovers of pleasure. Notice that there, there's no way it mentions that they're lovers of God. Does this not describe the world in which we live? Never have I been more aware of all the affluence we have in America. It's like we just can't get enough. We're, we've never been more wealthy. We've never had more pleasure. And you know what we're doing? We're choking on two things in America. Religion and money. 
we, we've got so much of it. It's like when God gave them so much quail and manna from heaven. Remember, they choked on it until they threw it up. In Romans chapter 1, verses 20 through 32, Paul describes the downward spiral of sin that, that he, is so evident in our world today. He writes, verse 21, uh, For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him. But their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. What's Paul saying here? He's saying that in our foolishness and wickedness, we have turned away from the one who created us, the God who loves us, the very one who longs for our affection, we rebuff. Instead of loving our Heavenly Father, we give our affections to other idols like money and pleasure and sex and religion. And what is God's response? He lets us have what we want. He gives us over to our sinful desires. He lets us go our own way. In Romans 1, Paul informs us that God gives us over three times to our sinful desires. So listen to this. Don't you track with me. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the Creator, who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, here's the second time. God gave them over to shameful lust. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. Furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, a third time he, gives them, he gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. A depraved mind is when you can no longer discern between good and evil, between right and wrong. If you look at the history of our nation, you can see clearly that in the 1960s, which was characterized by psychedelic drugs and free love, when the saying was, make love, not war, during that time period, God gave us over to sexual impurity. But I want you to notice this. It was natural sin. The first issue of Playboy magazine hit the newsstands in 1953. And by the 1960s and 70s, the magazine hit its zenith in terms of its circulation. As we continued in our downward spiral as a nation, God then gave us over to shameful lust, to unnatural sin. First natural and then unnatural. In the 1990s and 2000s, homosexuality was thrust upon us in every venue, on television, in the movies, in the courtroom, and sadly, even in some of our churches. You can't even watch ads these days without seeing two men kiss each other. And I, I frankly don't want to see it. Each time that God has given us over, the downward spiral has only accelerate, accelerated until finally, God has given us as a nation over to total depravity so that we can no longer discern between good and evil, between right and wrong. This is where we are today. <laughs> and we, God has so given us over that we're just like without God. And we're a nation with a depraved mind. We call sodomy gay. We call murder choice. We call a, a God-fearing man who believes in the Bible is God, that it's God's Word ignorant and bigoted. Our depravity has become so wicked and re rebellious that not only do we as a nation practice all kinds of evil, but we cheer and celebrate with those who do all these things. Just watch Hollywood. They, we're, we're, as a nation, we're, we're celebrating evil, and, that, and thus we're mocking God. And what does God say? I will not be what? I will not be mocked. And what we're doing is we're saying, God, judge us. God, come on, judge us if you're really there. Paul includes his indictment of those whom God has given over with these words, the last words. Look at verse 32. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. Again, watch Hollywood. Hollywood celebrates that which God has caused shameful, 
indecent, unnatural, and perverted. And these are not my words. These are God's words. I know, <clears throat> I know this is a day when we're looking forward to a great football game. And I know this is a sober message. You probably want to hear something more encouraging tonight. And this message doesn't bring me any pleasure. But it's what we need to hear. You know why? Because it's the truth. And the truth will do what? Set you free. It's what the whole world needs to hear. The truth. If the world knew what, that this truth that's being preached here tonight would set them free, you wouldn't be to get, a, get in here. They'd be lined up. <laughs> Same way on Tuesday night at the men's Bible study. If they knew that we're actually offering the gift of eternal life, it would be packed. But it's not. I believe if I preached the same thing on Tuesday night in China, if they'd let me, it would be packed. P people would, would travel a week to be there because they do that now in the underground church. But see, we're choking on our wealth and our religion that we are nothing but dead. And dead people can't do anything. Now back to 2 Timothy. Paul says that in these last days, people will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Now, the reason I went so fast is because the clock is ticking, and I'm not going to take you through each one of these words. Do you know why? They mean what they say. Words have meaning. <laughs> When, you, when God says it's treacherous, you know what treacherous means. When, when God talks about love is a pleasure rather than love is God, you know exactly what He means. It doesn't really need an explanation. The real problem we face as a nation and a society is really it boils down to this. We don't really love God anymore, and we've actually lost sight of God. That's why the churches are empty. For one thing, the reason the churches are empty is because they've recognized that dead orthodoxy has no life. The only churches that are growing are the ones like this one. Have y'all noticed how crowded the parking lot was this morning? It's because the truth is coming from this podium. <laughs> and people are drawn, particularly young people, are drawn to the truth. That's why a lot of people are not a young people. Except for Jim Young back there. <laughs> but Jim, good to have you here. I'm not real young either. <laughs> how do we lose sight of God? How did we as a nation that began with a Christian foundation, and we did, by the way, that's why they've got the Ten Commandments all in courtrooms, and that's why Moses is in the Supreme Court holding the Ten Commandments. That's why there are verses on all the monuments in the Bible. <laughs> I mean, on the, on, all Bible verses on the monuments in Washington, D.C. They can't strip some of that away. It's still there reminding us of where we began but the reason we're here is because we as a nation have lost our spiritual mooring. A mooring refers to the cables by which a ship is secured or anchored. We as a nation have lost our mooring, and thus we are tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men in their deceitful scheming. That's Ephesians 4.14. Paul points to this problem in verse 5. Look at verse 5 carefully. I'll camp out on this one for a minute. Having a form of godliness, but denying its power. What's he talking about here? Well, Paul is, what he's saying is that in these last days, people will be religious and lost. We, we will have a form of religion that is no longer moored or anchored to the gospel or to the truths that are given to us in the Bible. It will be a form of religion that has no spirit and thus has no power. Romans 8 and 9 says, and if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. You can sit in a church until you're blue in the face. You can recite the Apostles' Creed, the Lord's Prayer. <laughs> you can give all your money to the church. But if you don't have the Spirit of the Holy Spirit dwelling in you, then you will never be allowed into heaven. That's what identifies us in Ephesians 1. It marks us. He sealed us with His Holy Spirit. And that's God's way of identifying you that you belong to Him. And you've got to have that mark in you. So if a person is not marked by the Holy Spirit, that means that he does not really belong to Christ. 
And, and the reason he's not a true believer is because the present Holy Spirit is not in him. So what determines if a, true, a church is, is a true church? The presence of the Holy Spirit. That's why Jesus told the woman at the well, yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in what? Truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and His worshipers must worship the Father in spirit and in truth. By the way, what they're doing in some churches, they, it looks like they're worshiping, but they're not. You can't worship God except in the Spirit. So not only have you got to have the Spirit in you, but you need, I mean, you can be in a, in a church that doesn't have the Spirit and be worshiping God because you got the Spirit in you, but you'll be there, you'll be by yourself. You want to be in a church like this one where people are filled with the Holy Spirit and the truth has been taught. And, and that means the Lord is present. When we gather here, the Lord is present tonight right here with us. There are churches and even whole denominations that are full of people and even ministers who are not indwelt by the Spirit of Christ. What they are is, is they're religious and lost. These people in these churches have a form of godliness, but not its power because they do not worship in spirit or in truth. Isaiah 29, 13 is an indictment against the modern church. The Lord says, these people come near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is made up only of rules taught by men. What I just said. You know how that we got here? The strategy of Satan. It really began in the garden when he said, did God really say? It's been his strategy from the day one. What, de what decades ago, really centuries ago, Satan, and I really began, I believe it really began during the Enlightenment in Europe when faith was replaced by reason. But what Satan did, he called for a meeting of his chief demons who were commanded to come up with a scheme. Satan expressed his concern to this demonic horde as they gathered before him. He said to them, America is a new nation. It is, a, it is a dangerous nation because its founders have established it as a Christian nation. Churches are being filled everywhere, and Christianity is spreading, and we've got to stop it, he said to his demons. Satan looked at his lieutenants and said, we must come up with a plan, a plan that will lead to the moral implosion of this new country. So Satan demanded that his lieutenants lay out a plan on how they would cause America to become unmoored from its Christian heritage and its biblical foundation. So one by one, they each put forth their best plan. One demon said, let's make America the wealthiest nation in the world. Then they will love money more than God. So they said, that's a great idea. But it's not great enough. There must be a, a greater plan. And so another demon suggested, let's take away America's wealth. Then the people will blame God, turn away from Him. Satan said, well, that's a good plan too, but I don't think it's good enough. He insisted that, they had to, that there had to be a more effective strategy. Finally, the most hideous demon, the one whom they all feared, and who was the most di diabolical, stood up to, to speak. And when he spoke, you could hear a pin drop. His name was Abaddon. You find his name in Revelation. Satan knew that he was the most cunning of all his lieutenants, and so he really listened. As he spoke and began to lay out his strategy, all the other demons began to nod in agreement. His plan was clearly the best. It would work. What was his plan? A band began to lay out a strategy to infiltrate the church. His plan would begin to unfold in the seminaries. He said, we must be patient. This will not be easy, and it will take time. We must begin to fill the seminaries with professors who question the Word of God. Many really don't have a relationship with God. We must fill the seminaries with skeptics and agnostics. Then over the course of time, these professors will cast doubt into the minds of thousands of naive students who will enroll. And once we gain control of seminaries, it will just be a matter of time before we have the churches. Over the course of time, the church will be filled with men and women who receive their degrees from these liberal seminaries. Men and women who doubt the Word of God. Men and women who wear clerical cause but don't know Christ. Men and women who will lead the people down the wide road. Satan was beside himself. This was the perfect plan. 
And he decided to call it Operation Infiltration. Then Satan commanded his legions to put his plan into effect immediately. That plan went into effect in our country back in the early 1900s. That's why J. Gresham Mason wrote a book in the early 1900s. He was a brilliant scholar graduating, who graduated from Princeton Theological, Princeton Theological Seminary, which all these schools were, were, were begun as seminaries to prepare preachers to preach the gospel to send out missions. Did y'all know that? He wrote a book called Christianity and Liberalism. He said they're really the two are not the same. So that, plan, that Operation Infiltration, was, which I believe began in the heart of Satan back in the garden, and then it was really came to life in Europe in the 1800s, and then it came to America in the 1900s. That's why the churches in Europe are empty. In England, about 3% of people go to church. These beautiful Gothic cathedrals are empty. You could, it's like you can hear an echo. Paul warned the Ephesian church in Acts chapter 20, when he said, I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years, I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. I'm no Paul, but I have been warned. And listen, I, I'm not bragging, but I've been warned about this for 30 years. You know, when, when Grant stood up here about um, two Sundays ago and talked about the, the final judgment, he said, I, you know, I, I don't think I've ever heard a preacher around here preach this sermon. I said, well, you, I tell you to Christian, well, he ain't been listening to me. <laughs> That's why Grant one time said that we are brothers from different mothers, because we are on the same page. The church today in America is full of false teachers. They may not appear false, but, they, but they're false because they're masquerading as somebody they're not, and they're very dangerous. Do you know why? they got millions of people following them. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 11, 13 through 15, For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, masquerading as apostles of Christ. And no wonder when Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. Satan's not going to come to you in a red costume with a pitchfork. He comes as a wonderful minister. It looks like one. He says, It's not surprising then if his servants masquerade as servants of righteousness. Their end will be what their actions deserve. It reads Second Peter 2, 1 through 3, when you have time, it's just, but there will also prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves. Many will follow their shameful ways and bring the way of truth into disrepute. Warren Worsby writes, Having a form of godliness suggests an outward appearance of religion, not true Christian faith. For they never experienced the power of God in their lives. Form without force, religion without reality. I have to be, I used to attend a church like this, right here in Raleigh, for years. In fact, they, um, I'm not going to go into that, but it's one of the things that really drove me to leave my career and go to seminary because I really felt I wanted to be able to um, have a theological understanding so that I could defend Christianity against liberal theology. And it's the reason that I started the ministry Finding Purpose, mainly to rescue men out of these churches. <laughs> and I have had a number of friends drop out of my Bible studies to my great chagrin. And do you know what they do? They run to one of these churches because they feel safe there. They didn't feel comfortable with me. Satan has lured hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of men and women into churches where they will never really hear the gospel. Churches which have a form of godliness but denying its power. So Paul has given us a warning. Paul has provided revelation about the problem. And now Paul issues a command. What is the command? Here it is. He says, have nothing to do with false teachers or false preachers. Look at verse 5. It's amazing too, you know, People, I have men say, why do you talk so much about liberal theology and the problem with the church? I said, because it's almost on every page in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Peter, 
Paul, James, and Jesus talked about it. Jesus battled liberal theology. That's what got him nailed to the cross. <laughs> Look at verse 5. Paul writes, have nothing to do with them. This is strong language. Now, this does not mean that we not to have anything to do with lost people. We have everything to do with lost people because we're the only light many of them will see. So what does he mean have nothing to do with them? He's referring to the fault. Them means the false preachers and teachers. We have nothing to do with them. In fact, we're to flee from them. Jesus said, and this is the, what I thought about when, it, when um, I just think of one word. If you're in a church where they're teaching false theology, you should get right up and run. Here's why. I mean, some people wonder, well, should I stay here and be a missionary? I went through that same thinking. No. <laughs> That's not the mission field. Mission field is when you leave the church, not when you enter the church. John 10, verses 4 and 5. Jesus, this is, these are the words of Jesus. He said when he, he's talking about a good shepherd. When he has brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them, and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. But listen to this, but they will never follow a stranger. That's a false shepherd. In fact, they will run away from him because they, are not, they do not recognize a stranger's voice. That church I used to go to, all the, the minister talked about was God. And so I never heard him talk about Jesus, like, you know, Jesus. So I, they had a little, you know, they passed the collection plate, and you, they had a little form that you could fill out. I'd love to hear a sermon on this topic. Well, I said, I'd, I'd love to hear a sermon on Jesus. I didn't sign my name, though. <laughs> By the way, I did go when I was about 32 and, and, and in a very loving way confront that minister in his office for one hour. And that's when um, he used to like me. <laughs> but that's when um, he no longer liked me. And I, I did it very lovingly. I wasn't judging him. I just said, do, do, what do you, how do you feel about Psalm 139 as it relates to the issue of abortion? Because they allowed a professor to come to this church and teach a class on abortion. I said, you've got to be kidding me. Certainly our minister won't support that, but he did. He was pro-choice. Governor Hunt at the time was a member of that church. He pointed at him. He's, a pro, he's pro-choice. I'm pro-choice. I read Psalm 139 to him. You know, he never looked down at the word, Bible when I was reading it. When I got through, he said, Rush, you realize Psalms is full of poetry. He talks about the hills and the trees and the valleys and the streams. This is before I went to seminary. When I went to seminary, I had Dr. John Selheimer as one of my professors. One day he said this, anything, you don't, listen, don't jump when I say this. You don't take everything in the Bible literally. Did you know that, Jeff? Here's why. Because when it says, I saw your, I saw your, um, y'all saw you knit together. God did not take a needle and knit it together. See, it's, it's poetry. But see, as Dr. Salem explained to me, but it is painting a reality. You don't, so there's some metaphors in the Bible, but anything that's poetry is not to be taken literally. It's, it's usually a, it's pointing to a reality. And the reality is God made the human being from the moment of conception in the depths of the womb, in the depths of the earth. That's the womb. I saw your unformed body before one day came to be. He just said that was just, you know, some poetry. It doesn't have any meaning. I, said, I, I wish I'd known then that, well, you know, well, he was a doctor. I said, well, it, it points to reality. Anyway. Our friends run to these churches because they tell them God loves you and everything is okay. God does love them, but everything's not okay. John MacArthur writes, True believers are given a standing order to avoid such men as these and reject the false doctrines they teach and the false standards they live by. Regardless of how convincing a false idea may appear or how sincere say they come a false teacher it may seem to be, we are to take ourselves by the scruff of the neck and make ourselves avoid such men as these. Why is Paul so adamant about this? Why can't a believer just remain as a missionary in the church? Here's why. Look at verses 6 through 9. I haven't read this yet, and I will end with this portion. So getting near the end, bear with me. They, these false teachers, are the kind who worm their way into homes and gain control over weak-willed women who are loaded down with sins and are swayed by all kinds of evil desires. So are men too, by the way. <laughs> I don't know why 
Paul leaves that man there, but I didn't write it. Always learning, but never able to, a, a, to come to a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so also these teachers opposed the truth. Men of depraved minds who, as far as the faith is concerned, are rejected. Who rejects them? God. But they will not get very far because, as in the case of those men, talking about Janus and Jambres, their folly will be clear to everyone. So here are the two reasons why Paul says to avoid any church that teaches false doctrine. False teachers prevent people from coming to Jesus. That's, it's that simple. They close the gate to the narrow road. They, look, they block the path to the cross. People who near, need to hear the gospel of hope, to hear the truth so they can be set free, never get to hear the true gospel from these teachers. And thus they stand in the way of God's saving grace. Secondly, false teachers are actually opposed to the truth, and their opposition can be fierce. I mean, when I, when, uh, this, this minister, next time I saw him, he did not look at me with a friendly face. He was more, thank, he was more uh, interested before him that we were both fraternity, had been the same brothers of the same fraternity. <laughs> well, he, should be, he should have been patting me back. Man, I'm glad to have somebody in the Bible in my church who really believes the Bible. But no, he tried to confuse me, and I was only 32 at the time. But I got news for you. My mother raised me to believe the Bible. So did my minister, and so did Billy Graham. And I believe the Bible ever since I read it. Didn't understand it all, still don't, but I believe it. The part that I don't understand, like Billy Graham, I accept by faith. They prevent people from hearing the truth because they don't really proclaim the truth. They don't proclaim the truth because they don't possess the truth. And because they don't possess the truth, they have no light to share with those who walk in darkness. So Paul commands us to avoid them. Run from them. Janus and Jambres are not mentioned in the Old Testament, but according to Jewish tradition, these were two of the magicians. Remember the magicians when Moses came before Pharaoh, and they first they turned the Nile into blood. Those magicians did that. They, tur they turned the, the staff into a serpent. They did that. They could copy them. They could mimic. But they were counterfeits who stood in opposition of, to Moses. Thus, they stood in opposition to the truth. And that is... Um, <clears throat> What false preachers and teachers do today, they stand in opposition to the truth. And in the opposition, they lead the church astray. Dr. J David Jeremiah once said, the church in America, now listen, is leading the, the masses down which road? The wide road. I don't have time to read Jeremiah 23, but he basically says, do not listen to what the prophets are prophesying to you. They fill you with false hope. They speak vision from their own minds not the mouth of the Lord. He even says they lie to you. He says they weren't sent by God. And that's the truth. Many of them go to seminary because they think it's a very respectable occupation. And they'll be able to speak wisdom to a city. And so they, they, they relish the applause of men more than the applause of God. And they walk across campus going, bless you, bless you. Like they can actually convey blessing on somebody. Paul concludes this message of Scripture by writing in verse 9 that these men will not get very far because as in the case of, of those men, Janus and Jambres, their folly will be clear to everyone. See, those two magicians could not match Moses' power. And so eventually their folly became clear to Pharaoh and everybody that was watching. Eventually that which is counterfeit becomes evident when held up against the truth. One day, I believe this will be so true in the not-too-distant future during that last hour when the Lord returns to judge the world, these false teachers and preachers will get the worst sentence in hell. Why? Because they carry so many people with them down the wide road that leads to what? Judgment and condemnation and the white, great white throne judgment. Our country, by the way, back to our nation, is imploding from within. And if, if God doesn't intervene, our country is going to collapse. I'm serious. We, so we need to have a revival. That's what happened to the Roman Empire. It imploded, from, it imploded from, the end, from within. It had so much moral filth and greed and wealth that it just imploded. But I believe this. Listen, I want to end with hope, okay? I'm getting tired of this message. Hope is what we have to offer to the world. And I believe God can still bring a revival. Do y'all believe that? Yes. So if we want revival, guess where it begins? With you and me and right here in the church. We have to begin with 
Here's what we have to do. This is what you take away, okay? As we are God's children, we must walk with God. Blameless, holy, and righteous. We won't be perfect. God, listen, God had to clean me up. <laughs> That's a whole other sermon. But I, he wanted to clean me up. You know why? So he could use me, <laughs> the sinner that I am. I tell the men on Tuesday night, we're all sinners, but somebody's got to be up here. God chose me. <laughs> I don't deserve it, but neither do you. So I tell them, I wish I could have an out-of-body experience to just come up here, and this body would be preaching, and I'd be sitting right down there where Jim is, listening to what I'm preaching. Because listen, this message is first it's directed at me. We need to walk with God by clinging to His Word. That's the thing. Cling to His Word in the days ahead. Paul writes in 2 Timothy 3, 12 through 15, in fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ, Jesus will be persecuted, while evil men and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures. Second, this is the last thing point I'm going to make. We, need, we must acknowledge and confess our sins. We're all sinners. Only then can we look for God to send revival to land. Repentance always begins with the house of God. Second Chronicles 7, 14 and 15 says, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, if, whose people? God's people humble themselves, pray, seek God's face, turn from our wicked ways. Then that's what I had to do. I had to turn. Even as a, I became a Christian when I was like 10. And I went to Carolina. I did not act like one. <laughs> I stopped going to church, and I just drifted into locust fields. But I turn, I, 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 I confess my sins to God, to men like Jim and others, and I humble myself before God and before men. And then, you know what God did with me? He heard from heaven, and He forgave my sins. He washed me clean. And He says He'll do that for our nation, but it begins with us. He will forgive us as a nation if the church will repent, turn to God, and he will heal our land. And then he says, my, now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayers offered in this place. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for their attention span for this fairly lengthy message. I pray to God that it will resonate truth, that even out there on the Internet and perhaps even on the radio at some point, this message will be heard and people will be saved, convicted to the core, and turned back to you. And, Lord, we do pray that you bring revival soon and follow that revival with your return. That is our hope, and that's what we cling to as we look forward to the last hour. In your name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more sermons, information, and events, check out our website at capitalcommunitychurch.com.